What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> ECW World Heavyweight Champion. The ECW. When you want to load down the professional wrestling, come right here to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. You'll get all the load down. <laughs> Well, guys, it's great to be on the, on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. It just You said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. but Chad and John, the two-man power trip. That's uh, that's an awesome uh, name for yourselves. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Scotty Riggs, and you're listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, man, what's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie, Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. What's going on, guys? This is a 7-foot, 330-pound DNA of TNA. That's right. My DNA is outer space. And you're listening to the two-man power trip of professional wrestling. You know, I, I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know 10 times more than I do. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. this program to bring you a special report so we're back here on the two-man power trip of wrestling and i'm joined by a former guest of ours and a great friend the legendary wwe hall of famer tito santana thank you so much for joining us today oh you're welcome it's been a it's been a great day hanging out with you and uh it's always my pleasure to be here and and uh, be at your company yeah, I'll tell you what, it's funny enough, and we're so happy you're here today because the reason we're taking to the airwaves is because there was a very unfortunate piece of news that hit the internet this morning, and you hate to even give the kind of credence to these weirdos that come up with these things, but there was a death hoax that I was woken up to this morning, and obviously, and I'm so relieved to say, it's not true because standing next to me is Tio Santana, but what do you think about somebody going out of their way to write some inane just babble about you like that? Well, I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, I'm an old timer, so I'm not uh, very, very uh, savvy about computers, but there are some small, uh, you know, group of people who are mean and just say things to hurt people. Uh, you know, how dare anybody, you know, uh, make up something about me uh, passing, you know, and... Uh, a complete lie. Thank God it's a complete lie, but you know, there's some mean people out there. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's funny enough, we're here in Virginia where you've got a lot of history, you've got a lot of actually spent time in this building performing. We've had a couple people come up to us today to say that you performed in this building 20 years ago, which is awesome to hear. But when somebody goes out of their way to say something, especially, you know, in the cadence of a death, which is 
awful and terrible. It's, uh, it's a relief to say that you're alive, but of course, if you're Tito Santana, you're always alive and kicking and throwing flying forearms left and right. But what about your history here in Virginia and performing spe- specifically at the Capitol Center in Washington? Well, uh, the Capitol Center uh, w- was important to me, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, Baltimore uh, Civic Center was always, you know, I, w- I was talking to you about that. Uh, to me, that was the most memorable and, and uh, biggest match in my career when I beat Greg the Hammer Valentine to re- regain my intercontinental title uh, in the Baltimore arena. I mean, the people exploded, you know. I, I thought they had the best fans of anywhere, yeah. you know. They just... Uh, supported me and you know uh, I was the main event and you know I sold out uh, as a main event several times you know without Hulk Hogan and not too many uh, times uh, were big big buildings being sold out without Hulk Hogan being on the card and uh, I was happy to say that you know the wrestling fans were always behind Tito Santana here here in Baltimore and Washington, you know, the, the yeah. whole area in this in this part of the country. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, we had a guy come up to us today, said he was 14 years old when you jumped off that cage and you won the Intercontinental title in a match where we documented it on the show we had with you, where we did the full interview, that the footage is gone. It's gone forever. The WWF lost the footage, which is nuts because Vince has all the footage. But that match specifically being one of your favorites, is there something today that somebody came up to you to say, uh, whether it was a memory or it was an item that you signed that just really triggers some great moments from your career that you really smile upon looking back. Well, it's it's uh, it's always a pleasure to, to. I mean, you were right next to me when uh, fans are coming up and you know bringing up uh, uh, different uh, things that they remember, recall matches that they recall, and, and you know that's uh, stuff that you know I haven't thought about for a long time, and you know those are all great memories, and to share them with with the fans. Uh, I have always given credit to the fans. My career was uh, uh, was big because of the fans. I mean, I came in as a nobody into into this area, and and uh, the fans just kept getting behind me more and more and more. And I believe that's the reason that uh, Vince had no uh, choice but to push me, you know, and, and to give me the opportunity to become the the Intercontinental and the World Tag Team Champion uh, holder. Uh, it was because the fans uh, were so behind me. Absolutely, yeah, and we really appreciate a couple minutes here just to kind of address the rumors, take another walk down memory lane, and of course have a lot of fun here, and now we're in Leesburg, Virginia, earlier today we were in Annandale, Virginia, but we're going to close it out, and the only way Tito Santana can close out an interview with a classic what? Arriba! Power Trip of Wrestling brought to you today and powered by our good friends over at Meow Box. Meow Box is the monthly cat subscription box service full of surprises and delivered to your door every single month. And please be sure to stay tuned later on in the show for a special promotion just for you, the listener of the two-man Power Trip of Wrestling, courtesy of Meow Box and MeowBox.com. And with that being said, you've already heard me. My name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, Primetime John Paz. And John, before we get into the interview, you heard off the top a little snippet that I threw in there interviewing Tito Santana over the weekend. Very briefly, we had an awesome weekend taking over Virginia. The Tito takeover was in full effect. 
And it was just funny to wake up in the morning to rumors of his demise, which was, thank God, a false rumor. Uh, but nonetheless, one that needed to be addressed. And Tito, uh, we had a, just, like I said, an absolutely great time. And just to spend a few minutes talking with him on the air, did not, you know, just even remotely cover what it was like to spend the, the day with him and just talk about old school wrestling and, and the heyday, as we like to say, uh, our wheelhouse with the legendary Tito Santana. If you want to listen to more about Tito and his career, go back to the one-year anniversary. Earlier this year, Tito Santana was the one-year anniversary episode of the two-man power trip. It's almost fitting that today's guest is one of the guys who is the founding interview of the two-man power trip of wrestling concept. It was back in the old blogging days where I got the chance to interview the man, the beast, Dan Severin, in what was, uh, it's on YouTube, it was uh, not the best interview, it was about 25, uh, 26 minutes by our standards, that's a cup of coffee, but uh, you know, nonetheless, it was a great first interview for the two-man power trip to get under our belt and kind of get a little notoriety with what was said in the interview, and I kind of wanted John to fill in the pieces of what he likes to talk about, and that is the uh, ultimate fighting and the mixed martial arts, but nonetheless, when you talk about Dan Severin, you got to talk about his greatest rival, I guess, on paper, which would be Ken Shamrock, a.k.a. The Sham. There's a lot of stuff about that because that's very fresh on the beast mind. And it's really cool to get his take on a lot of the stuff that we didn't cover in that first interview, but still cover some of the stuff you got to hit. The brawl for all, the NWA champion, time in the UFC. But it's where we start with The Sham that I think is going to catch the most attention when it came to this interview. Yes, Chad, another fantastic episode here at the two-man power trip of wrestling. And returning to the world of TMPT is Dan the Beast Severin. Of course, one of our very first interviews, actually it was uh, Chad by himself at this point, back in our blogger days um, from over a year ago. Uh, you had him on, great stuff. You really went in-depth with him, touch on a lot of topics that quite frankly aren't really out there that much right now as far as his career and his life but we do touch on him again in this interview and it was great to bring them out to light and to hear some stories for the first time ever and he uh, specifically mentioned it was a couple that the first time he said anywhere and it's going to be part of his book so it's great for us to get a little bit of a scoop and get things out there first which we generally like to do and we generally love so th that was really cool so you know we kind of just start off a little bit on a weird note and weird because of the whole controversy with him and Ken Shamrock obviously these guys just don't like each other if you go back 20 something years ago to UFC Shamrock won one Dan the Beast won one and now they're kind of been searching for years and years to get that trilogy match and to finally get it done and they thought they were going to get it done a couple months ago with uh, your fight which was a very unique, weird, interesting kind of pay-per-view concept that they, uh, eye pay-per-view concept that they had, where Rey Mysterio fought Kurt Angle, uh, Chael Sonnen fought Michael Bisbing in a grappling match. So it was a different thing from each side of the world. And then, obviously, it was supposed to be Severn versus Shamrock, the trilogy fight, their third fight on that show, and it just didn't happen because uh, Shamrock backed out and, the whole controversy is, is, which is funny, I like that he calls him Sham, the Sham controversy, is that Shamrock actually agreed to that fight before he agreed to the Bellator fight against Hoist Gracie. So, I mean, there's a lot more 
into it, then you then you just think on paper like, oh, Shamrock had already another fight for Bellator. Of course, he wasn't going to fight Severn. Well, he was supposed to fight Severn first because that was the agreed upon fight. So if you know he got injured in February, he shouldn't agree to that match because he was already promised that fight in March. But you know, I digress. I mean, I could talk about that all day. Obviously, Severn was then supposed to uh, supposed to fight Tank Abbott, and that didn't happen. So we go into the whole controversy, we go into who he wants to fight left and who really is out there because obviously he's in his 50s now, he's still in phenomenal shape, but his MMA career is over 20 years, he has 101 professional wins, which is just absolutely insane, so it's one of those things where it's like, what else does he have to prove, who else does he want to fight, and obviously two guys on that list, Hoyce Gracie and the first most important guy that he wants to fight and that he just hates and just wants to get in there with and end this trilogy and, and win the feud, and that's against Ken Shamrock. Anybody who came into the WWF in 1998 definitely was earmarked for either a feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin or some kind of highlight on Monday Night Raw, and Dan the Beast Severn would be no exception to that. And I recall, and I was talking to you on the side about this before we got into the interview, that I couldn't remember if he was earmarked for Austin. I remember they talked about Dr. Death. I remember they talked about Al Snow. But I couldn't remember specifically if Dan Severn was earmarked for Steve Austin at any point. And obviously the Shamrock fight, you know, which we've covered, uh, was a big deal. But one thing that Dan Severn did participate in was the infamous Brawl for All. And I know that's a topic, John, you definitely wanted to get into with Dan the Beast. One of the most interesting things, you know, Chad, that, that we were talking about, and you know, obviously you just mentioned it right now, with Dan the Beast, is the infamous brawl for all. I didn't really know the whole story behind it, so obviously, you know, you don't know, you ask Dan the Beast, and Dan the Beast will give you his take on it and what really happened behind the scenes. And so the brawl for all happens. He's supposed to not be in it. Obviously, as an MMA fighter, he's one of the guys where it's like, okay, I don't know how fair it would be. He would, you know, he might kill everybody. It might be an unfair advantage. And we hear the true story about what happened with the brawl for a while. He wasn't in it, but then why he was in it, why he fought the Godfather, beat the Godfather, and then didn't advance to the next round. The Godfather advanced. So very interesting stuff. A lot of it has to do with money, and um, some of it has to do with the fact that it's not even worth it for, for Severn to even be a part of it. What does that have to prove of, of anything? And it was kind of just a stupid idea. Obviously, it was booked... Uh, very oddly, and, and he, when you try to do real fights mixed in with the WB style of WBF at the time, it's just not going to work, and it totally flopped, and it was absolutely terrible. And we do get into it. We go into the whole gamut of, of what happened, why it was booked, who booked him, why he pulled out, all that great stuff. The money that was offered, we get into that whole thing. It's very interesting, and I really didn't know the actual true story behind it, so I absolutely loved getting the real truth of the matter. And uh, one of the most interesting parts, too, that you get, get into is the, you know, Dr. Death thing. Dr. Death injures his leg during the match with Bart Gunn. Bart Gunn ends up winning. Then uh, Bart Gunn ends up getting knocked out by Butterbean. We get into all that fun stuff. And it's just, looking back, it just still puzzles me of, of why it even went down. And I think, judging from what the Beast had to say, I think it puzzles him as well. I threw it out there in the YouTube preview clip, and that is Dan talking about the new and improved 
Dan Severn, the new and improved beast. And that really was an interesting way that he put it about how he's adding new facets to his training game and the fact that he's only had three training camps in his whole entire career. But I know it's the question I like to end the interview with, but John, I want to throw it to you before we get it on over to the beast. And what would you say the legacy is of Dan the Beast Severn when the book closes? Because obviously he's a trailblazer when it comes to wrestlers getting into mixed martial arts. He's a multi-sport superstar. But at the end of the day, what would you say the legacy of the Beast would be? Yeah, the legacy of the Beast. To think about the legacy, he's a super fight champion, ultimate ultimate champion, is a UFC 5 tournament winner, is a UFC Hall of Famer. He has 101 career MMA wins. He's done it all in the MMA world. He's beaten them all. He's fought legitimately everywhere, All obviously all the big promotions. But, you know, you think of the few things he has left, and I mentioned this earlier, he wants that uh, revenge against Hoyce Gracie. He wants that somewhat revenge against Ken Shamrock, or he just wants to end the uh, trilogy fight, and he wants to win that feud. So there's not much left that he really has to prove in the MMA world, but he still loves to fight. That just shows the toughness and who he really is as a competitor. He just loves getting in there. He loves brawling. He loves fighting. He loves wrestling, grappling, and everything else. So, you know, he's such an experienced guy. So he's great in sambo. He's great in jujitsu. He's great in wrestling. He's basically just great at everything. And then you throw in there his pro wrestling background, which is just phenomenal. People don't realize he was a pro wrestler first and then an MMA MMA fighter. Same thing with Ken Shamrock. A lot of people, for some reason, either forget that or, or don't realize that. So that is interesting. And obviously, as, as a NWA World Heavyweight Champion two times, you can't get any more much more legitimate than Dan Severn. And it's such an old school thing. You get a shooter in there as your champion and he can basically, you know, take the win for real if he wants, if, if the other person isn't going to play. It's like the old Luthez thing. He was a shooter. He was a hooker. He could break you down. He, he could just totally stretch you and destroy you if he wanted to. So it was kind of an old school throwback as an NWA champion. Obviously he held the belt for quite a long time. And then there was the TNA controversy where he didn't end up in TNA wrestling. But he was still the NWA champ, so they stripped him of the title. That whole controversy, very, very interesting stuff. And, and if you remember in WWF, he was still the the NWA champion, which was so interesting because he really never had a contract. It was kind of a handshake deal. And that's one of those things you just never, ever see. But really, really cool that he was able to kind of get around that, especially at that point in time when WWF was at their height. Um, but, you know, looking at that WWF run, if I can go back to that for a second, very oddly booked, if, if I can have to say so. And we talked to the Beast about it, and we definitely get really, you know, digging deep into the details behind that of why he kind of didn't have that trilogy fight against Shamrock in a worked match, at least. And WWF could have made some money off of it and built it up, and that never really happened. They, I think they had one four-minute match, and it was a DQ, and they had a couple of triple threats with Owen Hart. So very, very weird. But, you know, as I kind of just look back at the legacy of the Beast, I can't help but think he's one of the greatest ever in the MMA world. What a complete legend in the pro wrestling world and the one thing you have to say about him not only is the icon and the legend he is just simply legitimate tough guy badass oh hell yeah he's a badass in every sense of the word and he's going to take you up to cold water michigan and he's going to lock that sleeper on you and you will never know what hits you 
But I'll tell you what, those matches that they did have by including Owen Hart and even Steve Blackman made for an interesting summer of 1998 between the four, you know, I guess you could say best uh, maybe Matt guys that the WWF had at the time. And I did love the fact that Owen Hart was in the mix there. It really kind of gave him a new facet to his character and led to that infamous Lions Den match that they had at Madison Square Garden. And also the month before, they had the crazy match in the dungeon between Ken Shamrock and Owen Hart. And I'll never get the uh, the sight out of my head of Ken Shamrock's entrance through the uh, the kitchen, the Hart kitchen, down the steps and into the dungeon itself. But that was an awesome uh, time. And one of the few highlights I think that Dan would have been in in the WWF, which was obviously a huge, huge missed opportunity at that point in time. But there were so many guys on the roster then. You know, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle, but it's a damn shame looking back. And with all that being said, John, we want to remind you today's episode is brought to you by Meowbox. And if you head on over to Meowbox.com and you throw the code POWERTRIP10 in the checkout box, you'll get 10% off your first monthly box subscription. Again, 10% off your first monthly box subscription, and that's courtesy of Meowbox and Meowbox.com. Now, partner, do what you do best. Hit them with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and tell them just a little bit more about the great folks over at Meowbox. Yes, Meowbox is back. Not only is your Meowbox personalized by hand with your cat's name written on the inside of the box, all of the edible items are made in Canada or the USA so you know where all your ingredients are coming from. Also, they have a program giving program. It's called One Box Can. With every Meowbox purchase, they donate a can of food to a shelter cat on your behalf. Also, and most importantly to me, for picky cats like mine, my cat is Lucy, who has a very special diet, we offer to receive meow boxes with absolutely no edible items. They actually replace food and treats with more toys and more surprises. So that's meowbox.com. Please enter promo code POWERTRIP10 and receive 10% off your first subscription. Again, it's meowbox.com. Enter the promo code POWERTRIP10. And now for some TMPT business, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Pal and at Two Man Power Trip. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. We are releasing the latest and greatest clips. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on there, please check out the feed for prior great episodes with the late American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, Jesse the Body Ventura, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the phenomenal A.J. Styles, the Demon. Glenn Kane Jacobs, The Lunatic Fringe, Dean Ambrose, Stan the Laird Hansen, and many, many more. Also, please check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. You can now check us out on Google Play, as well as Player FM and the i95 Sports Network. For any bookings, please hit up our email, bookings at tmptofwrestling.com. That is bookings at tmptofwrestling.com for any of your booking needs. Also, check out our store on prowrestlingtees.com. It is new and it is awesome. So please check it out as prowrestlingtees.com. Also, while you're there, check out the Kevin Thorne page as well as the Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff page and the coming soon, the Buff Bagwell page. So please check that out on prowrestlingtees.com. And now, without any further ado, 
the former UFC Super Fight Champion, the former UFC 5 Tournament winner, UFC Ultimate Ultimate 95 winner, and the former two-time NWA World Heavyweight Champion. He is one of the most iconic and greatest and most legendary MMA fighters of all time and one hell of a professional wrestler. He is Dan the Beast Severn. Please enjoy. And I kind of emerge every now and then just to let the future know that, hey, I'm still alive, ticket, and I am taking care of business. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, it's uh, it's so great to talk to you again. And uh, obviously, we're coming off a few weeks uh, uh, removed from uh, some, some pretty big news out there involving yourself and uh, an old nemesis of yours, uh, Mr. Shamrock. And uh, oh. we talked about. Oh, we, we, we had to we had to start that we had to start the interview off on a negative note. Wow. See, I look at it as I see. I don't look at it as a negative. I look at it as. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a negative well, in the positive, his side of it, but it's a positive in the way I look at it from you. So I look at it from the take of you yourself had said as you retired that there were only a few fights that you would come out of retirement for, and you listed those very bluntly. Well, when you were uh, contacted about a fight with Ken Shamrock, you, of course, a man of your word as always, stepped forward and got right to it. And just as crunch time was about to come down, Ken Shamrock had to pull out of the fight, and obviously you were not very happy. And now that we're a few, re- few weeks removed from everything, looking back at it, what's your take uh, on the whole situation, and do you think anything's ever going to come to pass with uh, Mr. Shamrock again? Uh, let's just say that uh, I'm not going to let this this new, improved Dan Severn go to waste. So uh, I will be doing something, and hopefully, uh, yeah, I told myself in the next 30, 45 days, I'll have a kind of a basic game plan what I want to do, and uh, if it fits within the timetable, oh, I will be letting Ken know that I'm still available to him. I'm letting him know even now I'm still available to him, but he's going to have to convince me that he's worth waiting for <laughs> at this point, guys, because... I gave up five months of my life. I trained. I dedicated myself just to have him just, you know, belly up, roll over, and bow out. Nah, not acceptable whatsoever. He can come up with any any type of excuse he wants to that the sheer fact is we already had a date set. And if you guys have read any of the stuff I've posted, the Bellator fight, was announced after our date was already set. wasn't made public, but our date was set. I can't believe it. Without me looking at my book, I couldn't tell you. But whatever that fellow talk date was, you know, we our date was was uh, on that Sunday. I think it was supposed to be on February twentieth. If that's probably served me correctly, and then it, it could be pushed back by a month to March twentieth. But our date was set before Bellator was ever announced. So to me, I don't know how you're going to get the, the guy to actually uh, commit to something. And, and in my opinion, his, his word means nothing 
already. So I don't know. Tough, tough to ask. Now, how do you consider yourself to be the new and improved Dan Sammer? Because when you you know who you are and you followed your career, I mean, on the outside, we see the same beast that we've always seen. I mean, you look virtually the same that you did in your fighting days. You're, you know, you're, you're, I would say, and I, don't, I know you're still fighting, but, you know, we're talking the Dan Sammer we all know with the sweat on the T-shirt. And how, but how are you the new and improved Dan Sammer? Well, I would just say that, uh, well, a lot of people don't really realize the fact that, uh, I've had a long career uh, of, of mixed martial arts alone. But during that same career, I've only had three training camps, period. And so I've, I've, you find another MMA fighter who can make that bold of a statement and then have the success ratio that I've had on top of that, that's, uh, that, that's unheard of. So, um, when I say new and approved, the sheer fact that I knew about an opponent for almost five months. You know, I was contacted by this uh, UR network company back in uh, November of 2015. And as soon as I was made aware of it, I already started to implement training programs slowly because, you know, <laughs> I'm not as young as I once was. So I was slowly implementing my trade. Then uh, it increased more and more as as I was feeling capable of taking on more and more. New and improved because, oh, I added a few other things to my arsenal that I think that would have been surprising to most. Which I don't mm. wish to divulge at this point that in case this ever does go to fruition. Hmm. That's pretty interesting, yeah, because, uh, I mean, for you to add things to your arsenal at this point, I mean, obviously it makes you that much more dangerous in a uh, in a fight capacity, and just and being somebody who's watched you for all these years, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome. But just another name involved in that whole Shamrock fiasco, or the Sham, as you like to call it, is Tank Abbott, and Tank Abbott was named as a replacement, but then ultimately uh, had his issues with uh, with the fight as well, but why was Tank Abbott not somebody you were particularly looking forward to uh, having to uh, mix it up with? Well, he was not on my list. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I've been involved in two different industries. My first profession, the wacky world of professional wrestling, you know, at the 92 Olympics. Then by 1994, jumped into the world of cage fighting. So when I, when I retired... When I retired from fixed martial arts, I retired with a claw. And I simply said, I would seriously contemplate coming back out of retirement for one of three people. And right in order, it was Lamar Coleman, Ken Shamrock, a Hoist Gracie. I had no other, no other uh, uh, axe to grind with anybody else. Just those, just those, those people. So, you know, the sheer fact that, uh, that, uh, you know, well, let me back up. Mark Coleman is now off the hook. Mark Coleman has had, I think, at least two artificial hip replacements. He's uh, he's got some health issues. He's off the hook. So the only two other real viable opponents is Ken and Hoyt. Tank, I did take already. All right? So I really did not want another tank match. But 
I was willing to accept that match because, well, really the only reason was because it fits the format of this three-week circus that was taking place, this freak show of a show. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean there had never been a show like this. The sheer fact that there were four main events going to be taking place. You were going to have a submission grapple match against a couple of domes. You are going to have a boxing match uh, against a, 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 a true pro against basically a fan. You are going to have a professional wrestler match. And then you're going to have this fixed martial arts match. No other card has ever, has ever attempted something like that. So I, I kind of felt that Jake Abbott kind of fit the, the freak show mode. I was willing to accept that one. But I, I should say, I was, I was willing to accept it, but when, it, when the name was thrown to me, and I thought about it for a little bit, I said, sure, but you better contact it pretty quickly because I don't know when the last time he has competed. Will he pass the state's medicals? Those are just first, those are the first two. The state of Arizona went way beyond the call of duty. A couple weeks before the show was to take place, I was I had a meeting with the Arizona State Athletic Commissioners. I had to stand up there by a podium there and answer questions to seven different commissioners that were questioning, you know, why at my age they wanted to physically be able to see me. And they, they did their due diligence and they looked at uh, what my record was that I wasn't, uh, you know, a dispo, a losing streak, and I'm, I'm you know, that looks like I'm just doing it for paydays and things of that nature. So they, they really did do their due diligence. And, you know, I can't commend them more for what they really did. It's just they went way beyond the call of duty and then also just to simply allow an event like this to take place. But these are some very forward-thinking men and also some men that have participated in mixed martial arts so they understand a lot more of the mindset of the competitor, where most states, and I'm, and I'm talking about say most states, I'm saying probably 98, 99% of the states, they have bureaucrats and legislators that know nothing about the sport dictating the policy. Not not just, well, let me back up, that was a bold statement. Really, as it pertains to the amateur level, pro level, the the sport of mixed martial arts is that it has the unified rules, it's good to go. Amateur level, the rules are wrong. And I'll leave it at that. You know, and it's, it was, what I kind of like about the whole scenario from uh, a fan's perspective, um, and John's more of the uh, the fight guy than I am, but I look at it that these are two guys that we're talking about in Tank and Ken mixing with yourself that, you essentially, you laid the groundwork for them to branch out of actual fighting and into the wacky world of pro wrestling, as you put it. And it's funny enough, since we had first talked, I've actually used that same phrase, the wacky world of pro wrestling, because I love how you uh, you identify it as that. But in our first interview, what you had talked about was participating in a uh, an actual, like, pro wrestling training tape and back in the day where, you know, you had to get your VHS tape, and if you wanted to learn some ins and outs, um, this was a tape you had to find. And I actually went out and uh, and was able to locate a um, portion of it, not the whole thing, a portion of it, and to see how far back 
your, you know, your time training in pro wrestling goes, um, do you look at yourself as somebody who, you know, not that they owe it to you, that you opened up other doors, but do you see a respect factor just not being there when your, your integrity that you have for a fight versus maybe some other guys that don't take it as seriously? Well, yeah, that's it. the sad part is that's, that's the world that we live in. That's, uh, do I, do I, uh, I don't really wish to accept that. And uh, I, I like to, well, I tell you what, there's just so many different emotions kind of come out uh, on that with it. I wish I actually lived in a different time era. <laughs> of course, the time era I thought was wish I really lived in would be that cowboy era where if someone came on your ranch and did you wrong or something like that, you just put a bullet in their head and uh, you let the buzzards eat them. That would, that's, that would be a do ju- the justice that I'd be looking for. Quick, swift, done, and the world is a better place without this turn. That's how I look at it. But uh, yours truly is not a, a very politically correct person, so I'll try to put a little bit more be- better political terms. There are pro level. There are ways that you can you can make athletes. Uh, abide by rules and regulations per contract. And the sad part is you can't take them at the word. you got to spell everything out in a contract. Um, I've only, I've, I've actually dealt with very few contracts myself in a sense that in my professional career, once promoters basically, you know, they look to have me booked, I tell them, I'm booked, I'll be there. I don't need a contract. You know, just make sure that they're going to be there. Make sure that that the agreed about uh, amount is going to be there as well. I'm going to be there, so I, I've got a phenomenal track record in uh, the professional wrestling world where not too much makes sense whatsoever. It's uh, it's a delusional uh, world of fantasy where everyone gets to dress up. It's like Halloween. You get to dress up and be somebody else that night. And I even put myself in that same category when I first when I especially when I first got involved professional wrestling, yeah, you know, I was a nobody in that industry. Yeah, you know, I, I had amateur wrestling credentials, but I didn't mean a hill of beans in professional wrestling, so I used to wrestle twice on the card as a professional wrestler. I used to have a, a hood on, you know, the mask, a whole bodysuit, gloves, uh even footwear so that you didn't see one square inch of my body. And I had a bodysuit on underneath it to where I looked like I weighed well over 300 pounds. And I did this little uh, Japanese sumo gimmick, and I, I called myself Tubby Tanaka. It was a, a spoof character and a heel character. You know, he'll be the bad guy. And, I, you know, as I said, I used to wrestle twice on the card. First half of the card, I would wrestle as Tubby Tanaka and, and be the bad guy. And then in the second half of the card, I'd wrestle as Dan Severn, the good guy. And it just, it amazed me. You know, I, I did such a good job portraying the two different uh, parts. I remember one night uh, as I was walking out of the locker room, there were, like, I don't know, two, three fans that were out there waiting. And uh, as I come out there, like, they're like, hey, Dan, great match. I go, thanks, guys. I, and uh, and I'm like, are you guys waiting for anyone? 
in the in the to, to the I do as basically about the last guy getting out of the locker room. And uh, yeah, they're, they're like going, "Oh yeah, we're waiting for Tubby to get We're gonna kick his ass." <laughs> Here I I had that I had that character in my duffel bag <laughs> as as I'm walking out, and I'm thinking, "Well, I must Tubby to get must have did a good job that tonight." You got fans wanting to, to beat him up now, <laughs> but it's still, it, you know. But professional wrestling, it's a psychological, um, it, it's a it's a psychological uh, story is is what you're you're telling out there. You're you're, you're uh, it's most times it's good versus evil, and, and evil usually is cheesy out there that that doing things, low blows, chokes, or you know the the uh, the hidden weapon. There's all kinds of things that you can do, but you're telling a story as you're doing this with your body language and facial expressions and just uh, the over animation that that takes place in professional scenes. I loved it. You know, being both characters, I know I kind of I, I, I digress off of the original question there, but. Uh, Maybe you can bring me back that track now. How's that? <laughs> a great answer, though. But, you know, so many people don't even realize that you, and, of course, you know, Ken Shamrock spoke, that you guys were pro wrestlers before you were actually MMA fighters, which a lot of people seem to forget. But your background is much more, you know, in-depth than, than just a normal, say, amateur wrestling background. You, you know uh, BJJ. You're uh, very good in judo. You're very good in sambo. You know, and you combine all that with the wrestling, and it's amazing. But I wanted to almost get to wrestling, but before I got to the wrestling, I was just curious, how did you actually get into UFC and cage fighting from the pro wrestling world? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, as you said, a lot of people thought, you know, the high visibility that they saw, they, they saw the in, uh, the cage fighting stuff first, and then they're like realizing, well, you know, he's a sell but, you know, this this should back that I always had to correct people go, no, if anyone's really should be mad at me, it should be the professional wrestling people because my first profession was professional wrestling as of the 92 Olympics. Then 94, jumped in UFC number four was my very first one that, uh, that I ever competed in. So, uh, you know, that, that, that they're, you know, all the fans will also be saying, well, that, well that's acceptable. I'm thinking that's a little catch-22 right now. But uh, how I got involved with it, uh, pure accident. I had I had been already pursuing professional wrestling, um, and uh, I was trained in Lima, Ohio, with, with Al Snow, and they had a gym that was uh, known as Body Slammers Gym for professional wrestling. They had screens and all that all set up there, and uh, all the people that were gathered up. I was traveling basically two and a half hours one way for a three-hour workout. And travel back for a half hour. So I had eight hours invested into one workout. So when guys would be standing there in the ring just bullshitting about nothing, I'm kind of like, how do I, how do I say nicely get out of the ring so I can keep doing because I don't want to waste my time. And I, you know, probably during that time, there might have been different people if I thought, well, this guy is a bit of, a, bit of an ass. Doing out because of what, uh, you know, because I am asking them to get out. But they, they don't realize like, what kind of time I have invested into it. 
nor do I think they believe it can. Because that 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 is one of those industries that it is a very it's a very selfish industry. It's like me me me, which uh, it's really good. But I guess this uh, the, the generation <laughs> that's coming up here now. So, but uh, you know, getting into this, you see um, the story I, I usually always tell is I always say you know because it, it was quick and easy to say was I had a buddy in uh, Detroit, Michigan. They have to watch the first two, copied them on, on an old VHS, VHS tape, and showed it to me. But that's not the true story. I've, always, I've said that in lots of interviews in the past because it's quick and easy. But in the process of writing the book, and in the book, I bring up the real story of how it all came out because I, I want all the details to be factual in, in my autobiography. And uh, the, the reality is, uh, a lady by the name of Phyllis Lee. She, she's gone now, but uh, from the professional world, she had seen my athletic resume on Al Snow's desk. I don't know why she was coming down back and forth between Al's school stuff like that. To me, it, it had something to do with professionalism, but nevertheless, she, she had to see my athletic resume and Somehow she knew about this, about this uh, cage fighting stuff, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and thought that I should be doing that. And you know, I had not, I had I didn't have a clue as to what she was talking about. So just fast forward is she was relentless on the phone, made a number of phone calls to the ownership at that point in time between Art Davy and Orient uh, Gracie about. Um, of course, she's probably just bugging uh, Art Davey uh, a great deal. And uh, I'm still pursuing my professional wrestling. And she was able to orchestrate a meeting between Art Davey and myself out in Los, Los Angeles, one where I was performing a professional wrestling match against a hawk of the Legion of Doom. I think that's probably the first time ever that that story's ever been broke out in public sector. So there you go. There's there's an absolute first for you. (laughs) That's awesome. We love having a first here. We love, you know, great original stories. And that's awesome because, you know, we love to get in depth and really hear the the real true story. But, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned, obviously, you know, getting into the UFC and and Gracie's and R. Davies and stuff like that. But everyone remembers... For whatever reason, everyone remembers you, uh, Hoist Gracie, Ken Shamrock, uh, Taktarov, like those time names that were part of UFC in the beginning, they seem to be never forgotten. Obviously, you're a UFC Hall of Famer. But what was your experience like when you first got in there and then, you know, you're winning the first two fights, UFC 4, and then you get in there with Hoist Gracie? Well, you know, to set the stage here just a little bit, I'll just say that uh, I was a last, a last minute villain. Somebody must have got hurt or someone found out because, you know, as I get contacted, uh, there's not a lot of time before the the events, uh, UFC events take the place. UFC number, I should say, UFC number four is coming up. I, I've always basically have lived out of a out of a planner. I mean, since, since my junior year in high school, I've been living out of a planner because of my average wrestling schedule. Um, so I, I basically I, I fulfilled my other obligations 
and time-wise, it only allowed me basically five days to train. And so, once again, I found myself traveling from Coldwater, Michigan to Lima, Ohio. Uh, the reason being is that we had a ring to train in. Today, uh, fast forward to today's time, you can go into almost any community and you will either find a full cage or at least a part of the cage so that you can train some type of cage wall type tactics. But back at that, you know, that 94 time period, there was only one cage and it was owned by the Oprah Fighting Championships. So a professional wrestling ring was the closest thing I could come to for a cage. And uh, so I had Al Snow and I had uh, two of his professional wrestling protégés in training and one old pair of boxing gloves that they shared between the three of them. So one would go, go out there with wear, with punch and kick, uh, and do whatever kind of submissions that uh, they could make up against me. When he got tired, he switched the gloves off to the next guy. When he got tired, he switched the gloves off to the next guy. And I basically stayed out in the ring the entire time. Uh, you know, maybe they grabbed a sip of water while gloves were being exchanged to the next guy that just, just kept right on going. And so I just tried to avoid being struck and then closing the distance, clinch them, take them down, uh, use the amateur wrestling techniques, and then, uh, you know, basically slapping on amateur wrestling techniques and turn it illegal as my submissions, and they would scream or squawk, and that was my training camp. I always tell people I never trained a single legitimate submission or a single legitimate strike. So when I showed up to UFC number four, they asked me, you know, because they got different guys that they you know, they put up their, their marshals background, their taekwondo, taekwondo experts, their, their karate this, their jujitsu this, their, you know, a, a boxer, a kickboxer, a sambo practitioner. And they're like, well, they would ask me, well, what's your discipline? I'm like, I'm an American wrestler. And, you know, as a person, had never heard that expression before. And they're like, well, they made the comment, well, what's that going to do? And I go, well, I'm not quite sure. You might want to watch because I'm making it up as I go. Hmm. There you have it. So I was, obviously, yeah. As as what you guys were saying before, my, my amateur wrestling background prepared me quite well we're stepping into a, this arena of combat, even though, yeah, amateurism has a lot of rules and regulations, but I was used to stepping into hostile crowds. I was I was wrestling during the Cold War era where Russia and the United States were, were eyeballing each other. Everyone's kind of pumping, both, both the nations are pumping their chests out, you know, Hovering their finger over the big red button to push the, the launch nukes. And, uh, you know, no one, you know, obviously none, none of that ever, ever happened, but, uh, you know, to be, be in that country and to wrestle against some of the, the best uh, athletes in the world I mean, and, and be in food and, and uh, athletes that are cheating and uh, uh, doing things. So it was, uh, it, it prepared me well. And obviously, you, know, you had a pretty good debut. You win the two fights, but then you lose to Hoist. Um, 
you know, with the, no, the no, submission. No, 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 no. Okay, I, I just want to correct you right there. I tapped out the hoist. Yes. Okay, but 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 you said I lost it. But I know, but I'm, I'm saying like this because what's what's the difference? Is you're probably thinking. I'm the only person who knows what went down to that match. I've told this story numerous times, and that's why Hoist was one of the three I wanted one last hurrah with. I know what I'm capable of doing. Now, I did, and I always tell people, I will live with my decision because I did the right thing at the right time. As I still see things that continue to this day, I would like to now right a wrong, but I don't think that match. No, I there's there's not no thought process. That match will never happen. Hmm. Not even in Bellator, possibly. Well, be my guest to, to you know, this is public format that we're, we're on with, be my guest to call Scott Coker or anybody else you know in that organization and have them listen to it. Or have, have anyone that listens to this contact Bellator. I welcome the opportunity. Hmm. As I said, I only wanted to come out of retirement for three people. You know, marks off, off, marks off the list. Cannon and Hoist, why not? Why not? I'm older yeah, than all, I, I'm older than all of them. Oh, uh, maybe maybe this is not the right time to bring this up there, but you mentioned uh, the top three names that that were first inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. Are, are you aware that only one of one out of the three have never tested positive for controlled substances? Hmm. That's a very you good point. In, you might want to look into that one and then hmm. and try to figure out which one of the three. That is a, a very good point. And like you said, you know, you like to, to avenge the, the Hoist Gracie situation, if that could happen, and maybe, who knows, a dream fight in Bellator, and you know, maybe that could happen. But obviously, you know, you came back strong, UFC 5. You win that tournament. You dominated. Even uh, Chektarov was a pretty big name and a pretty legendary name. You, you know, you beat him pretty good. But then, you know, you had UFC 6, which started the feud with Shamrock, if, if I think it started the feud with Shamrock. You lost there, and then you won at UFC 9, and obviously they kind of dropped the boat on a trilogy fight, which we're still hoping for, today, but do you ever kind of just sit there and think that maybe Ken dropped the ball or maybe UFC dropped the ball, but that the trilogy fight should have happened like 20 years ago, maybe? Well, sure it should have happened. Uh, you know, should have happened years ago. Sure, sure it should have. Right? I mean, even uh, the reason that, that the Vincent Mayer even uh, you know, hired both Ken and myself for, for that, yeah. there was a storyline story that they could have easily played off of from the cage fighting world to the professional wrestling. But at the same time, uh, let's, on just the opposite side, the cage fighting world or the UFC alone ought to be thankful to both Ken and myself. I kind of hate to even put it 
said in the same category with me, but uh, but the the sheer fact that we were both working for the WWF, you know, now known as WWE, but we were working for the WWF at that time. Uh, the UFC notoriety was not that strong at all. Nowhere near comparable to what it is like today. It's exploded uh, to, to such uh, magnitude. I, you know, the, the UFC at the time that, that Ken and I were, were competing there you know, did not have that kind of fusion. So more people literally found out about UFC, no holds barred fighting, because those were the, the credentials that were being trouted when Jim Cornette would be my mouthpiece, uh, when they were, uh, when uh, Jim Ross would be saying that, you know, Dan Severn is coming to the radio now, and he's talking about he's a UFC champion, he's this and that. You know, a lot of people, UFC, why? What is this UFC thing? You know, because it's, People just assume today it's just a known commodity. No, it had to go through growing pains just like anything else. It was unknown. You, the social media uh, landscape that is today was not there in yesteryear. So it's, we're, we're a very forgetful society, Americans as a whole. It's, uh, you're, you're as quickly as yesterday's news as yesterday. And you, you think about it because wrestling really is, you know, the, the grandfather to MMA for sure. And Vince, like you said, he definitely dropped the ball because you and Ken basically had one one-on-one match in a WWF and it went to a GQ. And then you had a couple of triple threat matches involving Owen Hart, but he never capitalized like he should have. And kind of, I know, you know, UFC, you know, wasn't as mainstream, but everyone knew about the Shamrock Severin war. And Vince really could have capitalized on that. That could have been almost like the trilogy, but it could have been in the WWF. I'll simply say, I agree. The, the ball, I'll, 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 just to elaborate a little bit more, because it's only pure speculation, because I don't know for sure. I think one of the reasons uh, that the, well, no, the, 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 we, we could easily have had, you know, this, this, this trilogy match that could take place, the few could, could continue to move on. But I think that one of the things that uh, maybe uh, uh, the company, and, or whether it be the creative team or Vince McMahon or combination of both, they might have been literally about putting any kind of a title or belt on me. It's just the fact that I was the very first uh, non-restricted wrestler ever on the roster. Not, you know, okay, I should say non-exclusive. I could wrestle for anybody, but that's the way I negotiated my contract. You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin, the Rock, uh, The Undertaker, none of these guys could do what I did. But we were in negotiations almost one year. Right, yeah, that's crazy because you were you know, you're the NWA champion, you're in the NWA, but you're in the WWF, but kind of on a handshake deal. You, you know, you're right, it's kind of unheard of. Were you the only guy, as far as you know, you know, through the street that has had that type of uh, deal with Vince and the WWF? As far as I know, I'm the only one ever. Even the NWA, when the NWA uh, first wanted to have the strap on me as well, they wanted me to be exclusive to them. 
Well, well first off, it was after after that I had already the NWB belt had already been put on, but there were only three promoters left that were a part of the NWA. Dennis Dennis Carluzzo was one of them. Uh, I'm almost positive it was his idea to put the belt on me. Uh, he even carried the belt out at UFC number five. And when hmm. I ended up winning, winning the, the championships, I held up both belts. So UFC number five, I'm holding up both belts. So showing that, you know, as they, today's world, you know, that the, the same company, WWE, is trouting Brock Lesnar as the first crossover guy. No, I did it basically 50-plus years earlier than what he did. And I had both belts in the Open Friday Championships held up. You know, now fast forward to what I was saying before, that even the NWA, you know, as I started realizing, I'm getting more, more popularity for them. Uh, I get a lot more recognition. Uh, they want to be exclusive to them. And I'm like, well, what's it worth? It? What's it worth to you? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I thought I said, if you want me to be exclusive to you, you should be willing to pay me to sit home now. I go, if an opportunity comes up for another promotion, and you guys aren't booking me for that same day, I'm going to go take that booking because that's called income. I don't have a normal job. And so, you know, I was not exclusive to the NWA. I was not exclusive to uh, the WWF. I've had actually several other companies since that time that have tried to get me to exclusive and it's the same spirit. What's it worth? If you want me to sit around and do nothing, pay me to do that. Otherwise, let's just, we'll go on this non-exclusive and we move forward. I'm not going to get any younger waiting on other people, so it's like I've always had that's been basically my deals. You know, I really don't think that Vince McMahon or the company really knew what they had when they had me. They did not know the type of character that I was. Let's just change that word character for a moment. Character traits. There's lots of everyone that's in that business is a character. They did not realize the character traits that I had. Character traits needed of honor, respect. My word actually means something. I want to uh, represent myself in a a manner that I can live with. So that's what I mean about character. Most people don't have character nowadays, period. Very true, and you were right about kind of forgetting history because you did it before Lesnar did it, and it's kind of uh, forgotten about because, you know, the way WBF is and the way the fans are. But one thing that I wasn't so sure of, because I always heard this rumor, obviously Uncle Steve Austin was on the rise at this point, there was always that rumor out there that you were going to feud with Austin and it was going to become, you know, like it, like the real fighter was going to challenge Stone Cold Steve Austin. Is there any truth to that rumor? Well, you, you're, you're bringing news to me at this point in time. I, I never heard about anything like that. Yes, there was you always, know, a, but, you know, kind of one of the things. Could, could there have been something like that? Sure. 
I understood the business of professional wrestling. Professional wrestling, it's entertainment. Vince McMahon himself exposed the industry, uh, what was it, in, in, in summer in the 80s, because he no longer wanted to fall underneath uh, the athletic commissions of, of each state that he was running in, because they, you know, because they kept trying to push it as being real, they were they were being uh, monitored by each state athletic commission, just by him simply exposing it and saying we're sports entertainment. Now it's, it's a whole different product. They don't have to go through all the the rigmaroles that they once did. That's right. It's definitely it's under the guise of sports entertainment now. You know, technically he doesn't even like the term pro wrestling, which is a bit strange. But you know, it's interesting when '98 came around, he actually tried to make it a little bit more real and do some MMA stuff with the brawl for all. And obviously, you were in there. But you know, I think you said it before you kind of had nothing to prove. You beat the Godfather. You know, what's why really be even in the brawl for all? You know, you could probably beat those guys. But you did end up pulling out. Was was it kind of a case of you really? Had no, 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 wait, wait, no, no. Let's 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 make a couple corrections there. Okay. When because uh, you, you basically said a couple of days later that uh, that are not that are not true. Okay. When this concept was announced to the talent, I don't remember where we were at, but you know, basically it was at, probably at a Monday night raw or a Tuesday night taping. A couple of the road agents. Uh, wanted all the, the talent to gather into the, the, the cafeteria area. And then they they said, uh, they started to explain this concept of this brawl for all, of how, what, how it was going to be conducted, you know, what what kind of gloves. And then and all at the same time, they're like, but the two guys that are not allowed in the, the brawl for all is Ken Shamrock and Dan Seth. So we were not ever allowed in it in the first place. So this brawl for all action goes on for the next couple weeks in a row. I'm at one of the next shows. One of the road agents comes up to me while I'm just in the back relaxing, waiting to see if I'm going to be on the roster here tonight. Because I, I say it like that is because they would always have a dry piece of board out there with, with an outline of the matches that they're hoping to take place. I say it like that because if someone went out there and and talked too long cutting a promo, or if someone's match went too long, also the, the the dry eraser came out and poof, a match would be gone just like that. You could be hmm. you could be ready in, in, in the gorilla area, ready to go out there and all of a sudden. Your match has been scratched because Stone Cold Steve Austin went too long cutting his promo. Or this match with The Undertaker just went too long. I'm just using it as, as examples. And uh, so Ken and I were not allowed in first place. After a few weeks of this taking place, I'm laying back there relaxing, and all of a sudden one of the road agents, one comes up there and goes, Hey, Dan, how would you like to be in the bra for all tonight? I go, against who and how much? They go, Godfather, they throw out a price tag. I go, I'm in. Wow. And, and, you know, but, okay, so there, there's your first correction about right. yep. and I was not allowed to be in there. How I'm being asked to be in, in there 
And they're basically, I, I told them, I go, I don't want to wear, I don't want to wear gloves though. And they're like, well, you can't go out there. They're not gloves. I go, I said, I will never throw a single punch. I said, I will parry his punches. I, I, I just want to show everyone that out there what a real wrestler can do. Well, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want that to happen. They wanted this brawl, brawl contest. Now, in hindsight, or I should say in, in speculation, something tells me, okay, this is going on, and wh- why do you think the brawl for all ever took place in the, in the first place? You've got professional wrestlers. Yeah, some of these guys actually have some legit athletic background in that, but they're, they're still they're in the category of professional wrestlers. The brawl for all, from an entertainment, entertainment perspective, was a flop, a dud, because the fans didn't really care for it. They, they're, they're there to watch professional wrestling, not this brawl for all. So it was, a, it was a dud in that aspect. Now, the other aspect that I'm looking at is that uh, I, I, I'm thinking that some of the agents, road agents that, uh, or creative people, or even some of the upper management were all sitting around BSing and thinking that this guy's tougher than that guy in the whole nine yards. And somehow, either a conversation was, took place with the godfather or his name got brought up and they go, you know, I think Godfather could beat seven. And so, why not try to see if it can, it can happen? And, then, and so, because once the match was done, I, I basically, I, I mauled, I mauled them. You know, just taking the belt off like this, but, you know, with 20 ounce gloves, kind of hard to, I wanted, to, I really wanted to be able to launch them and throw them all over the place. And if I didn't have those gloves on, I would have been able to do a whole lot more, but be restricted with 20 ounce gloves on. So as soon as the match is done, and I'm walking back, and literally as I'm getting the gloves unlaced and taken off me, one of the one of the road agents comes right back up and goes, well, you're out now. So I just, I gathered a paycheck for one night, one night's work. Because I know that it, it eventually went out uh, some type of report that I found out of it. No. So I, I would like to say into it because you know there was there was a pretty good uh, pot of gold that did into that one. Great to get the real story, you know, go right to the source and get to the real story because you know the the rumors floating around of this and that. So that's very interesting and and very you know very cool to get the, the actual real story and the actual perspective of the brawl for all from obviously one of the toughest guys in it. But obviously, uh, as you know, we heard through many other stories from uh, Pierre and Doctor Death, uh, Steve Williams. Yeah, they they just nobody cared for the the twenty ounce gloves, especially you or, or Doctor Death. If you guys have such a good wrestling background, you want to you know grab the guy, squeeze the guy. So, do you think that those like a guy like Godfather, like those legitimate tough guys, do you think they would really kind of put a feather in their cap, like, oh, I was able to beat a real fighter? Is that kind of the reason why you think that some of those guys wanted to go in that tournament? Oh, I yeah, I, I couldn't tell you. I I I think the original tournament, how it was thought of. You know, again, just to, just be speculating. I just think that you had some of the upper management guys, or maybe Peter guys, that are all just sitting around, just BSing about nothing, and they're you know. They, but somehow they 
they came up thinking that this guy might be pretty tough. Well, and Dolly goes, oh, no, I think this guy's actually tougher. And then all of a sudden, well, let's find out. Why don't we, why don't we uh, come up this, uh, with this idea of this raw for all? I, I mean, honestly, it, it just be speculated, but I think that's probably how it came about in the, the first place. Or maybe, maybe Vince McMahon was just to be bored one day and just so I wonder who's the cock of the roost you know again that you guys won't even understand what that, that term means but you know in, in every you know you know you have roosters and stuff like that so it's so it's usually that the the top alpha male so I, I, I better I better I better explain that because most young people are going to be thinking oh that's our this is you know being vulgar with this no it's just say who is the top dog? Who is the alpha male? And with your, I grew up on a, I, I grew up on, I grew up on a farm, so I, I will use certain farm analogies, such right, as right. You know, what I what I use all the time is the jackass and the two by four, because most people, uh, how the, I should, what what the story is, the farmer was trying to get the jackass to do something, and. Uh, he had to he had to first inspect the jackass with the two by four to get his attention, and then after explains to the jackass what he wants to do, he's got to hit it hit it again to drive this point home. So I I actually look at a lot of the people I have to deal with, especially in in, in today's generation. I'm dealing with the jackass and the two by four because they don't have very good attention spans and they don't know what they're doing. So I have to drive my point home. Makes sense for sure, and you know, just going back to the the WWF, you know, obviously, you know, you kind of run a handshake deal. You kind of, you know, you're still the NWA champ, or you're kind of, you know, going back and forth. You end up, you know, in the King of the Ring and the Royal Rumble, kind of, the, you know, a lot of the big WWF events. You wrestled Rock. I mentioned Owen Hart, uh, another legitimate tough guy, and Steve Blackman. You had like a little bit of mini feud there, but how did you ultimately leave Vince and the WWF? Yes, well, yeah, we 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 part ways. Based on creative differences, hmm. I guess that that would be the nice politically correct, correct terminology. Hmm. And then it's interesting because you know you're still being WWE champ and you're kind of going all over the place. And one of the places that I love that you stop along the way is obviously Japan, and that was a big part of your pro wrestling career. And a little bit of your MMA, you know, you, obviously you were in the first Pride against Timo and stuff, but really the, the wrestling aspect of your career, especially as an NWA champ, because facing legendary guys like Ogawa and Shinya Hashimoto, what kind of was it like wrestling those guys, and what's the general atmosphere in Japan? Well, just the thing I, the thing that I enjoy the most about wrestling in Japan is they, they respect the industry. Um, what I mean by that is uh, even as you get older and you, you may not be able to physically uh, be as agile and perform the, the booze as crisp as you once did, they appreciate who you are, what you have accomplished. Uh, the crowd actually might be quiet. They're, they're, not, they're not popping like a normal American crowd would be. But if you wonder, boy, they, this match really must suck to these people. But then all of a sudden, you know, when the match is done, 
you get a big round of applause. They really appreciated what just took place. So it's just a different culture, a different appreciation of, of what you guys just did, of your performance. So I really, I enjoyed being there because I did spend a lot of time through my UWFI career, and uh, which I also would, would credit for helping me in my uh, transition over to uh, uh, the cage fighting, the whole, the whole bar type stuff as well. I, I give a lot of credit to professional wrestling in the sense that it opened up uh, a very creative side to me. And I think that's why I, I, have, uh, I have professional guys, I have cage fight guys that come up through that right now. How do you keep going? How do you keep recreating yourself. How, how, how do you keep getting booked left and right? And I, I'm like, well, I'll tell them a couple of different answers. I'll, I'll say, uh, well, first off, you got to realize you work for yourself, so you have to stay. Your bills don't, are going to come in regardless. If you have income coming in, I, I'd rather have income as opposed to bills. Um, I'm very aggressive at pursuing things. I don't sit back and hope things aren't going to happen. I pursue things on a daily basis. And you guys are, are talking to me on a... I'm on the road here right now. I left uh, I left Arizona on a Thursday. Flew back to uh, Detroit, Michigan. Grabbed the rental car. Went back to Coldwater, Michigan. I was in Coldwater, Michigan basically for 24 hours. I drive in... Not, I should say, not even 24 hours. You know, I take my son to school, uh, see him off. I make a run, a run, a, a run an errand up in Spanish. They run an errand. That's a, it's an hour and a half round trip there. And then I, I'm right on the road headed to Manassas, Virginia. I got to lay down basically a nine-hour drive. You know, I get there for, you know, on Friday night, Saturday night, I'm doing a, uh, I'll be there doing against spirits at a uh, mixed martial arts event in Manassas, Virginia. On Sunday morning, at, I leave and teach at the amateur wrestling clinic by that afternoon in, in North Carolina. I, I leave there, then I head to South Carolina. Then I do two, uh, two more days, just doing two different locations, more stuff. I finished up last night, and basically I drove pretty much through the night, and now we're talking on the phone. I've got probably all of three hours of sleep underneath my belt. That's only because I just uh, pulled into a rest stop, tipped my head down, set my, my cell phone uh, uh, clock for a lot, just so that I do I get about three hours, pull back up, and my motor. I'll be in cold water here in probably the next five, ten minutes. Oh, unbelievable. The road traveled by such a, you know, old school legend, you know, like yourself. It's just great that, that you know, you're still booked and being booked everywhere. Obviously, everyone still loves it. But, you know, as I hit the wind down here, you did mention something that is really interesting to me, and that was the, the UWFI. And obviously, you know, you mentioned traveling all around the USA, but obviously in Japan with UWFI. And one guy that sticks out to me, and I'm not sure if it would be, you know, for, for you or not, but a guy like Takata, who's such a legend in Japan, and obviously, you know, with pride and, and everything else that he did, 
Did you kind of enjoy wrestling him? Was that one of your more favorite wrestling matches? Nope. <laughs> I, I had to hear. There's probably a lot more of that. He just he was he was the arrogant ass. Hmm. You know, just because yeah, you know, he's he's the figurehead of this company. Yeah, right. what I what I, I, I probably what I enjoyed more than anything was yeah, you know, I I've been going there doing uh, maybe half a dozen matches at that point, and all of a sudden I see this young Japanese, you know, because they're, they're always recruiting new new talent uh, to you know to to work up to the ranks, and uh, when you're you know, when you're one of the green boys or young boys, the way they call them, you know, the new one, the senior one, you're you're low man on the totem pole. So you're you're doing your you're the guys that are cleaning the ring, you're uh, preparing the food, you're uh, uh, you're you're basically the janitor, you're you're the cook. Um, but even which is kind of, you know, I, I won't say weird, but but in that in that pecking order, you'd have someone like Takana that would go in and take a shower, basically come out, and now you got the green boys that are basically drying them down, like, like squeezing them, but they can cheese so beat. You can't, you can't dry your own self. It, it, it kind of boggles my mind. Well, one of these young boys or green boys was Sakuraba. Oh, nice. So... You know, first, you know, he he he's he just I'll say he's just just a good looking little Japanese wrestler. Each time I kept coming back, he's he's changing more and more because you know, I come back this time. You see, he's he's got his first cauliflower ear, all twisted and puffed up. Come back again, you know, he's got a big egg over his eye where he's been thumped up because these these guys are just being brutal to him. And then. Uh, and then to be there the night that they smartened him up to what the business was all about, you could I could I could see the the the, uh, the short circuiting that was taking place. And it, 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 unbelievable that that uh, oh, someone somebody pulled back the curtain of the Wizard of Oz is what happened hmm. and exposed the business for the first time, and then. To, 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 to have seen that and then to see how he rose to become a star after that. That, I'm, I'm actually I'm proud of him and it puts a smile on my face. Absolutely. He's unbelievably awesome. One of the most charismatic, not only pro wrestlers, but MMA fighters. I mean, talking about setting pride off, Takata kind of laid the groundwork and Sakuraba took it to another level. And obviously, fighting-wise, Sakuraba is ten times the fighter uh, Takata was in actual MMA. Yep. I mean, he destroyed all the Gracies, beat them all pretty much, you know, single-handedly just beat them all one by one by one, which is great. Yep. But it's just well, awesome to see the, the respect there with you guys. It's been very cool to see him come up through the ranks. Yep. No, I, I said to, to see, see all that, it, 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 just like you said, as you described, but even when you first was describe it to Takata, I, I, I just wanted to sit and cut you up and just say, what was Takata's official record? Because his record speaks volumes about really what his true ability was. He's got a horrible record. Yes. Yep. So Much better but, in but he wrestling, was, but yes. <laughs> yes. Or, or and the fact that 
know, the, the UW, UWFI, you know, it was half work matches, half shoot matches, and then eventually started becoming all work matches. Yep, it's very, kind of a cool cool thing that they were doing there. You know, you kind of blurred the line between work and shoot. But if I can just go oh, back it was, to it you. Great. It was a very, a very strong, a very strong, very stiff style. I mean, it was, no, I, I, I enjoyed it for, for what it was. And just going back to you for a second there, do you have a favorite match or matches through your career? Because we talked to a couple, you know, legendary guys that you wrestled. I mean, we didn't even get into it. You had a couple of great matches with uh, Dory Funk Jr. for the NWA title, which is kind of a cool uh, throwback. To, you know, Dory, obviously, huge champion and uh, throughout the lineage of the uh, NWA. But do you have any, like, real favorite matches or, or match that really sticks out to you? Um, I, I know I had different moments in time, as is what I call it, because it's uh, I've had such a long career. I'm not, actually, yeah, I'm, I am, guys, I am forward in the cold water, so I am going to kind of wrap this up there shortly, because I just know that yep. uh, I, I was going to be able to flat my yap while I'm traveling, but once I, I hit my destination, I got I got things I got to do. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, let, I'll leave you on this clip, clip hanger of a note that I, I would like to kind of pick up from there, because I have had moments of time in each of my careers. Now, what I want to kind of leave you with is that the testimonial aspect of any true athlete is the test of time. I'm going to give you some timetables. Dan Severn is, is born on June 9, 1958. I start my wrestling career or, or my wrestling uh, uh, exploration or, or journey in 1969. By 1971, by 1971, I am teaching amateur wrestling. By 1972, I win my first national title. 1972, I win my first national title. By 1976, I'm the number one recruit in the United States at my weight class. All the colleges wanted me, and I had the academics to go along there, too, along with a congressional nomination. So if I, if I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy there. Let's just have forward by two decades. By 1996, I'm the number one cage fighter, no most powerful cage fighter in the world. 2016, we're going to jump again. A big scaposis there. I come back out of retirement to face someone who uh, bows out. I'll be nice for a moment. Bows out. Look how many decades I just went over. You find another athlete, either living or deceased, that can even come close to what I've done. And gentlemen, I'm not done. That's how I'd like to leave this interview. No uh, no argument from either one of us, but before we let you you go, could you please just share with the listeners where they can find everything there is for the beast, Dan Severn? Yeah, they just, I'll just give them the website, dansevern.com. They can find out more uh, about what I do and what I'm all about, and it has all the social media type information for Facebook and Twitter and all of the above. So I'll just leave it as simple as that. 
DanSever.com. History, and I've, I've made history. I am continue, I'm walking history. I'll continue to do this a while longer yet. Unbelievable, and thank you so much again for your time, and look forward to chatting with you again, and uh, hopefully maybe syncing up next time you're back down here in Virginia. All right, sounds good, guys. Take care. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.